You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the podcast. But before we get going, a couple of quick things. Jared, go! Two quick things. The evolution of Adam, we talked about this six-session Series. That's a hard thing to say. Yeah, it's a tongue it twister. How about six, six part session series? series. So it's it's that came out last week. It's now available to purchase. So you can go to the Bible for normal people dot com front slash evolution video. It's still pay what you can for just a few more days, and then it's going to be uh, sixty dollars moving forward. So go ahead and get it for that pay what you can. And uh, again, it's six sections of breaking down different parts of Pete's book. The Evolution of Adam. It's great for groups. So if you are thinking about doing a book study or a book group with other people, this would be a great place to start. And it also coincides with the 10th anniversary release of The Evolution of Adam, which is redone and it's got an afterword at the end. So check it out. Absolutely. The second thing is, real quick, we've been dreaming at the Bible for Normal People for a while, our N- team. Nightmares, huh? About <laughs> dreaming, not nightmares, dreaming. <laughs> About the future and, and what it is that we like want to be. Like I said, nightmares. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what it is that we want to do in the future and, and how we want to help, how we want to be accessible to, to people. And, and so we put together a, a campaign. We put together some ideas. We have some plans. And we'll be talking about this more next week. Just wanted to pique your interest, put it on your radar. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about how you can help. So we'll also be posting about this on social media and have been for a few weeks. So you can check that out. We tell some fun stories, talk about our past and how we met and what we're currently doing. We'll be talking about what we want to be doing in the future. And then again, we'll have a campaign where we hope that you can join in and help us out, but just stay tuned. So our podcast for today, we are going to have a podcast. We are going to have a podcast. And the topic is following Jesus as a native traditionalist. And our guest is Randy Woodley. Yeah, and Randy is a professor of faith and culture at Portland Seminary and has done a lot of research and, and studying on diversity, new church movements, eco-theology, post-colonial theology. And he's Native American, so it's great mm-hmm. to get an indigenous perspective on some of this stuff. Yeah, just a continual reminder to us about how you know people are diverse, theology is diverse, how we approach the Christian faith, for those of you who are into that. Is, is also diverse, and we really want to represent that here at the Bible for Normal People. We think it's a great thing to do. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into this conversation. Christianity promised all these things, development, hope, et cetera, et cetera, but for indigenous people, it only delivered oppression and death and bad news. It was the bad news of the gospel. Jesus never became a Christian, by the way. And I don't even think he wanted to start a religion. I think he wanted to start a movement. If he would have started a religion, it would look nothing like Western Christianity. If the church could stop being an organization and start being more of a community, I think we would be in pretty good shape. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. 
That's microdose.com, promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com, promo code normal people. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times. Your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24/7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, welcome to the podcast, Randy. It's great to have you. I'm glad to be here with you guys. All righty, awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So, just talk about what you do. You do a diversity, uh, you know, a diverse group of things. You talk about a lot of different stuff. So, how would you describe what it is you do? <laughs> Very difficult. So I do have a lot of interest, I guess. So I'm a farmer planter. My wife doesn't like the term farmer much. She just told me yesterday it's uh, she likes plant tender or earth tender, but that's not easily identified. <laughs> I think it's because you think it's paternalistic, but it's, you know, farmer, the, the opposite of a farmer is a farmer's wife, I guess. So, so okay, okay. Uh, she thinks farmers too uh, Western and white, I think. So, <laughs> so I got to stop saying I'm a farmer. So that start with that. I'm a planter, I guess we'll do that and an earth tinder. Uh, my wife and I do that together at a place in the uh, coastal mountain foothills uh, near uh, Yamhill, Oregon, just outside of uh, Portland, Oregon. I'm a professor, a distinguished professor of faith and culture at uh, Portland Seminary. I'm an author, I'm a speaker, I'm an activist. Yeah, I've been around, done a lot of things. I'm an old man now. I'm 65 and and uh, starting to uh, be able to get life in perspective a bit, I hope. We do a lot of hosting of people um, when it's non-COVID days. Unfortunately, COVID has really put a, a crimp on our style of uh, being uh, hospitable and hosting schools and building a community. And so um, we're waiting for all that to end so that we can get back to doing what we normally do and enjoy doing. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I think, uh, you know, that's it. I've got four kids. I've got five grandkids and another on the way. And life is, is pretty good. It has its ups and downs, but uh, I'm enjoying it. Well, one of the things, let's, let's jump into this idea here around uh, dualism and, and dualistic thinking. Because it's something you write a lot about, and I think it might have a kind of a foundational place for you in, in a lot of your, your thinking and writing. So, what, what, do, what do you mean by that, and how does it impact theology? Well, that is a sort of a, a foundational place. Thanks for asking. Uh, in, in fact, most of what I do, if not everything that, that I do and that my wife and I do, is to convert people from a Western worldview to a more indigenous worldview. The reason for that is because the West has developed a very dysfunctional, uh, I would say evil uh, worldview over about 3,000 year period. And, uh, and it's based on Platonic dualism. And Platonic dualism, of course, Plato, everybody knows Plato was a Greek philosopher. And 
a student of Socrates. Um, we don't really know a whole lot about what Socrates said because we don't know if his writings uh, were Plato or speaking for him or, or actually Socrates himself. Yeah, he, uh, he started something, and I'm sure it started somewhere before him. But, but he's the really one who popularized this philosophy of dualism. And the Platonic dualism really is where you put more value in the ethereal world than the material world or the spiritual, if you're a spiritual person, or the mind or the products of the mind. All of that more important than the physical realm, the bodies and earth and and the things that we can touch, the tangible things. And so, when you begin to do that, some really, really weird things develop over time. Now, um, Plato taught that. One of his students, Aristotle, ended up uh, teaching a lot of it, not all of it, and, and then beginning to look differently at some things. And, and sometimes we call Aristotle the, the father of racism as a result, and I'll explain why that took place too, I believe. And then Aristotle's student was Alexander the Great, who I'm giving you a very quick rundown, then I'll go back. Alexander the Great spread uh, this form of thinking and philosophy around the world when it began to die out in Europe, Western Europe, because uh, it went Rome and then Great Britain and the great empires, of course. Uh, when it began to die out, they had a renaissance of Greek thinking, philosophy, art, architecture, etc., literature. And out of that renaissance period, toward the end of that, the, a couple things were born, the Enlightenment and the Reformation. And so, um, we have some direct lines of philosophers along the way that uh, brought that both to the American shores in their thinking and to our founding fathers and uh, the church has been plagued with it, that when that uh, dualism was paired with empire during the Constantinian period, we really uh, saw power take a place in the church through a number of things, through hierarchy, through extreme categorization. Uh, materialism is this weird thing that we have in America that's sort of a uh, an oxymoron from dualism. We have this like high value for materialism, but low value for the material compared to the the uh, mind or the spirit. Really strange. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm kind of jumping around a lot here, but um, but basically, uh, what we end up with is a um, a philosophy, a life way, a worldview, a perspective that says that the material world is not as important as the ethereal world. And so, we can think the right things, but we don't always have to do the right things. We can care for our minds, but we don't always have to think our, of our, and we think of them as sacred, and we spiritualize them, and we care for our spirit, but we don't always sacralize or make spiritual our bodies. And um, we are both. We are mind and body. We are spirit and body. Or some people have a view of a tripartite human being, others, you know, but we're all one, really. The whole package is one. I understand how you can separate these things in order to sort of get at the details, but you have to bring them back together to live in a full reality. I'll, I'll stop there and we can talk about that wherever you want. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's dive into that a little bit more and say, you know, how does that impact our theology in terms of some of the conclusions we might be coming to that is maybe more influenced by this dualism than we think? 
Well, the hierarchy, of course, is is part of what the church adopted, um, and not just hierarchy in power and position. Although I would argue Jesus taught against hierarchy. He, he said, you know, things like, you know, don't rule over each other the way the Gentiles do it. You know, don't don't do that, but serve one another. And we took that as a virtue, but but not as a way of living. I, I would say that theologically, uh, it has affected everything. Part of it is white supremacy, because when you begin to create um, a dualism and one thing has to be more important than the other, who are no longer whole beings and a, a whole uh, ecology, then we have to have people over other people. So, of course, whites can be over other people, men can be over women, and those kinds of hierarchies have entered the church and into our theologies to the point where only in the last, you know, oh, what would we say, maybe uh, half a century uh, have uh, anyone but white men been theologizing or, or considered to be important theologians anyway? Uh, you know, things are beginning to change, of course, but um, but but we're we are addicted to the kinds of things that make us comfortable, mostly because they feel normal. So we've normalized white thinking, white theology, white culture, and I know there are more than one white cultures, but just sort of a, in a way to generally speak about this. And what seems normal seems um, important to us not to disrupt. We don't want to disrupt these systems that have been set in place that would uh, create uh, an end to our homeostasis. We like to keep things the same because of the safety, you know, uh, the same paychecks come in, the people don't get upset with one another, all those kinds of things. But right now we're living in a time, uh, and I'm especially excited about this time, where our systems are being broken to pieces. And part of what we need to do is begin to think about, like, how do we repair those systems? But theologically, there's, there's so many things, you know. I mean, we it, just the whole uh, idea of the old adage, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Uh, the idea that we, we would even be concerned about uh, heaven that is beyond the realm that we live in right now, uh, more than how we are actually living today. And uh, living today seems to be the most important thing in Jesus' mind when he said, you know, hey, you know, um, tomorrow will take care of itself. So, yeah, I think that's the, the greatest damage it's done in our uh, thinking is that, that theology becomes, and in, in in theology that's not embodied, a disembodied theology, becomes the most important thing to the church. And if, if you don't believe me, I'm in higher education. Check the paychecks of the people who are practical theologians as opposed to those who are quote-unquote theologians. And, and just the respect that they get and everything else, they're considered to be more important. So, we've, we've never learned to put Humpty Dumpty back together again after this great plague of dualism. And so, what we need to be about now is, is repairing those problems. And, of course, we have to admit them first, right? Yeah, I guess we're sort of in a period of transition that probably will be a rather long one. And, um, you know, one of the areas that, I mean, a big area you work in is indigenous theology. And I'm wondering if you can tie what you just said into that uh, concern that you have. And what, what does it mean? And, and how, uh, how does all this dualistic thinking, how do you address that through, through thinking in terms of indigenous theology? Yeah. And indigenous theology is somewhat of an oxymoron. It's, 
And I'll, I'll explain that. It, but it's like w- walking on a wet sidewalk on banana peels. If you start to theologize, you do indigenous theology, you're going to slip and fall back into a Western mode. It, because everything that we know has been defined by the West in terms of mm-hmm. the categories in which we do theology. And so, it's a very slippery uh, experience. And I've, I've believe me, I've had my falls. In terms of theology, a Native American theology or an indigenous theology, it's not about what you believe. So, uh, there are all these core beliefs, evangelicals and others have, you know, their core belief system, right? So, we don't have that in the indigenous world. We, And if you ask elders, and I've actually done this a number of times to test it out and ask them what they believe, they'll start telling you what they do. So, what you do is what you believe. You'll never see even like traditional Native ceremonies and people belong to, whether it's the Native American church or the Shaker church or the Peyote church or the the Native American Peyote church or sweat lodge or anything like, whatever it is that you're involved in, you'll never see people saying, you know, you can be a member of this if you believe like us, (laughs) because Mm -hmm. you are judged on what you do, not what you believe. And that that whole system of doctrine uh, of uh, orthodoxy over orthopraxis is uh, based on that dualism, so that we think it's more important uh, to have the correct beliefs than to have the correct actions. And, And even more foolish to believe that the correct beliefs will lead us to correct actions. History has proven that over and over again, that that isn't necessarily so. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction (laughs) level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. 
Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. And I have to say this up front too. So I'm I'm Native American, I'm Choctaw, and it's it's quite been quite infuriating to me to try to access, you know, sort of Choctaw spirituality because it's been so Christianized. And even today, like our, I get our, our newsletter every month or whatever, the Bishkinek, and it's always Christianized. Like we have a chaplain's corner and it just, yeah, it infuriates me. But beyond that, so whenever I ask this question, that's kind of what I have in my mind is my own frustrations with this. But the, what role does the Bible play when we talk about indigenous theology? Because again, I can't imagine it within my tradition, within the Choctaw tradition, there there's this block for the last 200 years where there isn't really access to the Bible except via the missionaries way of westernizing and kind of colonizing the culture. So how, what, how do you navigate the Bible when you talk about indigenous theology? Well, that's a really deep question, Jared. Uh, first, let me say, halito <laughs> wishing you peace in Choctaw. My wife's mother, was a Cho- Oklahoma Choctaw. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm German in case anybody cares. I feel left out here. Anyway, go ahead. I'm, pa- I'm, <laughs> I'm part of the problem. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I'm part of the dualistic problem. I, I almost single-handedly invented the dualistic problem, my people. So, anyway. Okay. Anyway, not to interrupt. Go ahead. No, we're going to be kind in here. And so, um, so uh, yeah. So, you know, Mission came as a colonizing force, right? And, and is still done, by and large, uh, through a colonized lens. And so, the the missionaries, um, of which I've been a missionary oppressor myself, to indigenous people, by the way, uh, in Alaska, when the missionaries came under, you know, you, you started with the doctrine of discovery, which was a Christian doctrine, which basically said, you know, white folks have the right to rule the land and indigenous people are not quite people. And then, you know, you, you had basically that white supremacy and uh, that colonizing, Western colonizing worldview um, embedded within all the systems of America, privileged to the, the, the white uh, landowning or wealthier male. And, and that those have never been taken out of the system. I mean, those are still part of the mores. We might have different language now and then, but just because we say different things, and I'm back to that dualism again, doesn't mean we actually do different things. So, when the missionaries came to our people, they were doing what they thought was right, which is what missionaries always do, right? They, they do what they think is right, even though it might be the wrong thing, because they have a Western white supremacist worldview. And so, we already had a way of, um, you know, transmitting stories, oral tradition, and I'm I'm probably among uh, the minority among my friends, uh, Bible scholarly friends who don't believe that we should have ever had the Bible translated in our native languages, because we already had a way of communicating those stories, and our understanding of how to interpret story 
is much closer, I believe, to the pre-colonial and uh, Hebraic worldview and the purpose for telling stories. But the Bible was handed to us in the same way it was the West in a very controlling Western male, white sort of magic, what I call the magic book theory, that all the councils in all the ages had everything right, and then it all came to us, and we're supposed to interpret through a Western worldview. The Bible wasn't written from a Western worldview. It was written as story. In fact, 90% of Scripture, my Bible scholar friends tell me, is story. And so, if you don't understand how to interpret story, you really don't understand the Scriptures. And if you don't understand this sort of a pre-colonial worldview, because Jesus was not a colonized person, I think he was a pretty decolonized in his approach, then, then you really, I don't think, know how to uh, interpret that. And so, in some ways, a, a very westernized, white, male worldview, someone interpreting Scripture might be the least qualified to understand what the Scriptures are about. And so, our people, though, our indigenous people have fallen in line with that same idea and said, oh, these are the experts. These are the people who, and I'm not against, you know, criticism of all kinds, right? So, form criticism, historic criticism, literary criticism, et cetera, et cetera. We need all of that. We need contextualism. We need all of that sort of stuff. But our people came to believe it as these are the experts. They understand it. They're going to tell us what to believe, and, and they're going to theologize from these scriptures, and then we take the theology, and then we apply it to our life. Even though it doesn't fit our culture, we apply it to our lives. And so, um, that theologizing of a misunderstanding of the stories has uh, not only led our people down the wrong path, but um, uh, non-Indigenous people as well. And, and unfortunately for us, because we just don't do Western culture well, I always say that our churches are a poor imitation of a bad model. Well, I mean, Randy, that, that leads to a question. How can an indigenous people be Christian living in the Western world? You know, where we have there's all this baggage behind this historically of you know, the white man is the expert, and you're sort of less than human, and we're going to give you truth, and you have to adopt these structures, this dualistic way of thinking. How, how does it work then, or can it work? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Do people really want to be Christian anymore? Well, that's the question I'm asking you. I mean, how does <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe that's part of the solution. Maybe people, maybe it's not being Christian, especially because of the baggage. Can, can you be Jesus-y and not Christian? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, okay. you know, the Christianity promised a lot of things, and what it, what it really brought was a – and we'd like to say, oh, well, when you take it down to its pure form, but it's never given in its pure form, right? It's always got <laughs> cultural baggage. And so, um, uh, Christianity promised all these things, development, hope, et cetera, et cetera, but for indigenous people, it only delivered op oppression and death and, you know, bad news. It was the bad news mm -hmm. of the gospel. And uh, my friend Richard Twist used to say, uh, you know, the message from the missionaries was – Jesus loves you, but he doesn't really like you <laughs> for indigenous people. Yeah, yeah. I, I think if we can separate Christianity from Jesus, Jesus never became a Christian, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Blasphemy. 
And I don't even think he wanted to start a religion. I think he wanted to start a movement in all religions and in all places. And I, and I think if he would have started a religion, it would look nothing like Western Christianity. So, probably a dozen years or so ago, my wife and I just decided we're no longer Christians. We, you know, Christianity led us to Jesus, and um, but we're shedding Christianity and we're following Jesus. So, we call ourselves Native Traditionalists who follow Jesus. That's how we refer to ourselves as. And, um, and I, I think uh, probably 60 to 70 percent of the students who uh, are in seminary that I uh, come in contact with are probably there for existential reasons. And they're probably like many of your viewers. They are trying to figure out how to hold on to God or even Jesus and, and shed the church because the church has been more interested in Christianity than it has Jesus. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Kierkegaard has a quote that I might misquote here, but he says, it's interesting in Christendom, in order to be Christian, one must cease to be Christian. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think you can be a Christian and follow Jesus, you know, yeah. but it's very difficult. Well, I think, you know, a lot of young people, Western young people, because, you know, I teach in a college and, and Jared does too, that I, I think they would echo some of that because I think it, it may t have taken much longer and be for different reasons, but... I just know too many young people who have gotten a little bit tired with the Christian trappings and especially the, you know, the connections with the political world over the last, you know, not just four years or, or, or eight years, but, you know, for a very long time in America, at least. And uh, I think they're looking for something very similar. They, I, kn I know a lot of young people who are like clinging to Jesus, but saying, my church isn't helping me here. My my church wants to more enculturate me for something else, and I I I just think maybe um, there are others in the in the in this Western world that are sort of way ahead of that game and sort of seeing the problems earlier on because they've suffered as a result of them, and um, most white Westerners haven't really suffered because of the Christian faith, not in the same way at least. If you look at uh, native the native church, we're probably the canary in the coal mine, you know. And we are in a lot of ways in terms of what's happening in the world right now, but it, it sort of hits us, you know, like they say when the, uh, uh, we'll just put it in different terms, when the white folks have a cough, native folks have pneumonia, right? Uh, we uh, experience the, the worst of society before everybody else, so we are like a canary in the coal mine. And I I think there are more uh, expressions of a more liberative Christianity. There are also some that are still trying to hold on to it, and that's fine. I respect people for however they want to believe. We do need communities. I mean, that's the one thing about the church. If the church could stop being an organization and start being more of a community, I think we would be in pretty good shape. Hmm. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M 
Noom.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. So then when, maybe I'm going to dig a little bit further on this question of, of the Bible, because, you, you know, as a native traditionalist who follows Jesus, we, how, how do you access Jesus? Is it through the scriptures? Is it through, like, what are ways in which you would say that you identify with Jesus or have connection to Jesus? So, let me share a story with you, if I can. And I think it'll get the point across. And I'll make it very quick. I won't take up all the time with the story. But uh, my wife and I were speaking up at a, a Hayward, Wisconsin, at the Lacoudere Reservation uh, at a YWAM basin. And they hadn't received permission to be there, we found out. And so, we needed permission to be teachers up there from uh, the local spiritual people. So, we found the right guy. Uh, we went and got a, a gift basket together. We took it to him, told him what we wanted to do. He talked to us for a couple hours. He told us a lot of stories, um, different things. But one of the things he kept saying, as he and he probably talked for, I'd say, an hour and a half at least, he kept saying, my uncle was a great medicine man around here. He trained most of the medicine people, but he would always tell me, don't disrespect Jesus because I talked to him and he's a great spirit. And so, you know, he kept telling another story and then he'd interrupt and he'd say, my uncle, remember, told me, Jesus is a great spirit. I talked to him. Don't ever disrespect him. And so, after saying that seven or eight times at the very end, he, he came back to that story and he said, you know, and then, so I asked my uncle one time, uncle, where did you learn about Jesus? And he said, well, you know, uh, I talked to him, I told you. And he said, yeah, but did you learn from the priest or the boarding school or Bible? Or, and he said, no, I told you, I talked to him. And he said, yeah, but how do you know all these things that he did? He goes, well, he talks back. <laughs> okay. Yeah. As native people, we don't have trouble understanding the spirit world. Right. We right. understand that as part of all of reality. I don't have to open up my Bible and uh, conjure Jesus. He's already uh, around us. God is, in, in my understanding, uh, at least what the scriptures say, is that Jesus is the creator. And so he had what we call the efficacy of creation. Uh, nothing was made that was made unless he made it. And so, Jesus, or creator, if you will, is in everything. His spirit is in everything. His, and so, I can go to outside and look at the sky and access Jesus. I can look at my own hands and access Jesus. I can look, uh, you know, I can open the Bible and read a story and access Jesus. But it, the problem is not accessing Jesus. The, the problem is believing that that there's a, a non-controllable way that I have to do this. And so, if I will just let myself be open to Jesus, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, if you will, you can use whatever language you want, then He will lead me in the right way, mm -hmm. or she will lead me in the right way, perhaps right. the Spirit or, might. Or just say the Spirit, right? Yeah. <laughs> we have a genderless language, so we can just say the Spirit and not commit, right, to male or female. Yeah, yeah you know, the, the, um, that's, that's so interesting that the Western world, what you're just saying, the Western world, one of its really bad things is not having much room for spiritual reality. Which is a little ironic, isn't it? Because if you have this dualistic thing, you have the ethereal is, you know, I guess, 
the mind rather is is everything and the ethereal but not the material but here's an example of almost the opposite that you've so deconstructed the spiritual in favor of the material in some sense that it's not really an active thing it all has to flow through the mind somehow but not the spiritual it's i find that very very interesting and um uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what do, what do you what do you do with that? It's it's hard to it's hard to function spiritually active in 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 a in a culture that is like screaming that at you all the time. Yeah, it, I, the Western mind is you know like uh, in church uh, is you know twisted three ways to Sunday. I don't know. It's it, you know uh, it's it's this emphasis on the spirit, but I think what takes over is the 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 spirit becomes subject to me uh as and that's the hierarchy kicking in right right uh, as uh, that's why we like things that are built by humans and we like our churches that are you know more than being out in nature and and although we go out in nature and we go i felt so close to god you know uh, but like that's where we're supposed to live right and then we come in for our shelter because what we do is we begin, the closer we get to creation, the more we get to see like God at work, the wonders, the miracles that are taking place. I mean, you can do the same thing with a microscope, but just for a sort of a, um, a larger mega view to look out and, and to see the seasons changing and the magic of all of that and, and who is behind all this, you know, and that very creator wants to make God's self be real to me. And that's 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 an incredible thing. I mean, to to feel like, wow, you know, myself and every other person and every other thing on the planet is important to the creator. Mm-hmm. So as people are, we've kind of talked about a lot of maybe our listeners wrestling with how to make their faith their own in a new way, kind of sloughing off maybe a lot of the baggage that they no longer hold to. What would be some words of wisdom or uh, ways of thinking that might be helpful to people who are on that path? And they're not, they're kind of in that messy middle where they're in the wilderness of, they've kind of left something that maybe was comfortable, but at the same time harmful and, and unhelpful, but they can't yet see what's ahead. Yeah. You know, one of the ways that we remind ourselves of who we are and who Creator is is through ceremony, and and I know there are there are different ceremonies that are communal that go on at different places. If you can become involved in those, I know a lot of people have gone to like Eastern Orthodoxy and other highly ceremonial Episcopal churches and others that are highly ceremonial, and then they but they also you know, complain about it not being as personalized or whatever, but, and then you also have to have your own ceremony. And, you know, even though um, we need to be a part of a group, we also need to sort of have our own personal ways of con- connecting and reminding us that we are connected or to, to for me, to, to Jesus. And so, and everybody's indigenous from somewhere, somewhere in their DNA. Probably most of those people, you know, that we said were, you know, pagans and idolaters and all those, there's probably a lot of that wasn't true because that's exactly what they said about our people. And uh, that wasn't true. So, um, how do you get in touch with your own spirituality? Say, if you're Celtic, 
you know, Celtic mystics and spirituality and Celtic ceremony, Nordic, you know, there's always things going on at the equinox and things. And, and I don't know, you know, there's a line that you have to sort of like look for. But maybe not draw it before you get involved of like, you know, well, what is really going into, you know, something that is anti-Christ? No, you don't know until you get there. And, you know, it's not like you, once you once you go there, you, you can never get out. It's sort of like, you know, I need to know, like, what was good about my indigenous culture that I come from, if if I know. And then because of senior blood, you sort of have a right to it, right? Uh, although, you know, we can't just like start doing stuff because that's what the Druids did or something like that. We uh, hopefully there's uh, people around who have been trained in those things. And, and I know it sounds like very much like I'm saying, you know, go back to quote unquote pagan worship. That's not what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about that there's probably a lot of forms that can be used for each of us to contact creator. It's sort of like, you know, we that's a, that's a thing of faith. You have to step out in faith and go, Jesus, will you meet me here? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think people will be surprised. It's it's hard to find the solutions in the same places that cause the problems, in a way. You have to branch out a little bit and look outside of your horizons, maybe. Yeah, and there, there are lots of groups that, uh, you know, maybe the group gets together and, and says, hey, we're a group of whatever, ex-evangelicals or whatever that we are, and and let's do something different together. We all agree to do it, and we all agree to have our open hearts and honesty, and let's do it like, you know, we've been doing talking circles for years and years. You know, we don't own the truth, Native Americans, um, you know, that you, you sit in a circle and you share your hearts and you ask for prayer and you ask for, uh, you, you might, somebody might sing a song or share from their heart or, you know, those kinds of um, intimate settings. I think you can meet God in a lot of different places um, in a lot of different ways, but uh, we've got to experiment. And I'm, I'm not afraid of that, you know. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that uh, God is much bigger than my fear. Right. Well, listen, Randy, that's a great way to um, end our time together. I think, uh, you know, fear is what maybe drives a lot of the resistance. But uh, we both want to thank you for just taking the time and sharing your wisdom with us and uh, for helping us to explore things from, you know, from what a lot of our listeners is a very different point of view. And, um one I know they're going to find enriching. Yeah. Then, you know, people can, if they have questions, they can email me. So I'm easy to get a right. hold of. Okay. We'll, are you sure? What's your address? Uh, it, I'm just kidding. Don't give it to me. Don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, not at all. No, we definitely are kidding. <laughs> you'll, you'll get one out of 10,000 people who are like, okay. Yeah. We don't need that. So anyway, thanks so much, Randy. Thanks for being with us. All right. Great to be here. You just made it through another entire episode of The Bible for Normal People. Well done to you. And well done to everyone who supports us by rating the podcast, leaving us a review, or telling others about our show. We are especially grateful for our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we are able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So a big thanks to Lori Volke, Elia Vasquez, Elizabeth Petters, Rebecca DeFord, Amanda Oster, Travis Jantz, Mike Ronan, Leroy Primpe, Peter and Mary Wall, and Laura Grant. If you would like to help support the podcast, 
head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be a part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Our show is produced by Stephanie Spate, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, and web developer Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. <laughs>